This episode of Saturday Morning Rewind is brought to you by Voice Chasers. Find out more about the voice actor you hear on this episode at voicechasers.com. Voice Chasers, celebrating the art of voice acting since 1996. Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind. A show dedicated to the love of animation and feeling like a kid again. So let's go back in time to when Cats defended Third Earth. Sword of Omens, give me sight beyond sight. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror that flaps in the night. And knowing was half the battle. Yo, Joe! Let's go back with Saturday Morning Rewind and your host, Tim Nidell. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Saturday Morning Rewind, the only show that takes you back to your childhood one interview at a time. And today is definitely no different because I have the one and only George Booza on the podcast today. And of course, he was the voice of Beast from the X-Men animated series from the 90s, which honestly is probably the best X-Men that we've ever seen on the screen. It would be quite disconcerting if this were to detonate. Disconcerting, yet provocative. I had such an amazing time with George. That's a great guy. I mean, not only did he do voices for the X-Men animated series, he was on Ewoks back in 1985. He was on Droids, the never-ending story cartoon in 95. Such an amazing talent that we definitely need to know more about, and that's why I'm here. It's, it's a great interview. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. But before I play it, please remember to check out our website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. And while you're there, if you if you really enjoy this podcast and really want to help us out, go to the donation tab on the website. You'll see that right there on the main page. And for just two bucks a month, we have a Patreon that really, really does help us out quite a bit. So I just want to give a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters for the month of September. Thank you so very much, Mike Clemens, Gimma Bright, Tori Garvin, Hugh Fortier, and TNT Life. And if you want to hear your name right there, go to that donation tab, just click on that $2 donation, and you can get your name mentioned on our podcast. And you may not think that 2 bucks a month helps us out, but it, it truly it truly does. You know, Of course, there's other tiers if you want to help us out like a couple of, of the Patreon supporters do, and there's more tiers where you can give a little bit more if you, if you want to. And it truly is a blessing to this podcast. And of course, make sure to check out my YouTube channel. Click on the Tim Nadell tab on the website, and you will be directed to my YouTube channel. It's my vlogging channel. You know, I travel a lot. I go back to my hometown of Reno, Nevada, show you where I kind of grew up. I also do a toy show where I unbox and review old toys from the 80s and 90s. I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. So check that out and make sure to subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Again, if you just go to YouTube, just type in my name, Tim Nadell. It'll be the first thing to pop up, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. And one more quick announcement. I'm going to be a guest at the upcoming Reno Pop Culture Con this November 8th through the 10th. Of course, it's in Reno, Nevada. A lot of great things are going to be happening that weekend. I can't quite tell you everything I'll be doing, but I am going to be celebrating 
the 35th anniversary of the original Muppet Babies. Can you believe it's been 35 years? That's just insane to think about. But I will be there celebrating it with a few of the original voice actors. We got Lori O'Brien, she was Baby Piggy. We have Katie Lee, she was Baby Rolf. And we got Greg Berg, who was Baby Fozzie. So make sure to join that because honestly, Lori O'Brien doesn't do conventions. This will be your first one and it's gonna be an amazing, amazing event all about Muppet Babies. So even if you're not near the Reno area, think about traveling to the Reno area because it's gonna be a fun convention. And I'll have my own little table there with Jason Schlierman from DAF Radio. And it's gonna be one heck of a weekend. So I hope to see you guys there. If you guys do come, please hit me up. It'd be great to see you. If you wanna know more about it, go to renopopculturecon.com and check it out. But I guess that's about it. Hope you guys enjoy my interview with Beast himself, George Buza. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Seriously, this is going to be a huge well, honor. That's always nice to reminisce. Yeah. All right, so speaking of reminiscing, let's just get right into it then. Our show is all about going back and reliving our childhood. I started this show so I can just, you know, let people know about my amazing childhood and all the cartoons I loved, all the voice actors that I loved. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was that like? Well, that would have been in the 1950s, and I was just thinking about uh, some of the crazy shows that were on the air, like Queen for a Day, where you had a lady who had the most horrible story about her life, and then the audience rated who had the most miserable life. <laughs> wow. And then they showered them with gifts. Huh. It was, it was pretty sick. Yeah, it sounds like. I've never heard of that. The Groucho Marx show, and uh, you know, later on there was McHale's Navy and Phil Silvers. You know, these were all standard comedies and uh, some crazy game shows, Beat the Clock. Mm-hmm. So it was a totally different time, different style of... Well, television was still in its infancy, really, in the 50s. It's true. And they were just trying things out, what would fly, but... I was just thinking about uh, that show, Queen for a Day, and how sick that was, and all these poor women who had horrible, horrible tragedies in their lives. There were three of them that went on the show, and each one of them told their tale. And at the end, they had this meter, and the audience would applaud for who had the most miserable tale. Oh, I thought we had bad TV nowadays. And, oh, no, this was this was on when we watched it every afternoon. My parents, my, not my parents, because my dad worked, but my mom and I and... We'd sit around and we'd watch Queen for a Day. And then these poor women who were probably living in huts and, you know, stuff in the Appalachians, they'd get a mink coat and washers and dryers. And wow. <laughs> so the last thing a woman like that needs is a mink coat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, how about food to feed your children? And oh, my gosh. That is A epic. roof over your head that doesn't leak. And yeah. Wow. Now, running water <laughs> was that a uh, was that when you're over in Canada or were you still in the states no, at no, that time? No, I, I didn't come to Canada until 1974. That's what I thought. Wow, I I've grew never up heard in Cleveland. No, I was brought up here uh, to do a part in a theater, and uh, every time I packed up to go home, I got offered another part, and I thought, oh, this is a really good place to be. So I went back to the states and applied legally to become a permanent resident of Canada. And I already had jobs lined up for the following year. And they accepted me on the condition that as an actor in Canada, you are self-employed and not eligible for any kind of public dole. Okay. 
They figured, well, if you don't make it, we assume you'll leave. <laughs> Welcome to Canada. <laughs> you know, that was 45 years ago. And there you go. But I also had the point system. I spoke French. I had a degree in uh, university, a half a master's degree. I had relatives that lived in Canada. So there was a point system that you had to fulfill in order to be eligible. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, I fulfilled them all. So that was wow. my segue into Canada. There and the work go. just never really stopped until yeah. I got old, and <laughs> 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 which is the story of a lot of actors. Yep. It is, it is. Now, when you were a kid, I heard that you were actually into comic books as a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, I used to read Superman and Batman and X-Men when they come out. By the time X-Men came out, I was already over 10 years old. Yeah. So that was already, like, Superman was something that we used to look for every week. That cost a dime, DC Comics. So would you but say- they all got thrown out. Were they? Did your parents do Oh, yeah, as did my baseball cards. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. No, this is this is another thing that eats away at me at times, you know. And what got saved was the junk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, look at this picture you drew when you were four. <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Mark Chagall. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that crap. Where's my baseball cards? Where's oh, my... Man. Comic books. Yep, I was the same way. As soon as I, I, I got a part-time job in Yellowstone when I was 19, and I kept all my toys, all my comics and everything, and I came back from the summer, and my parents sold everything. Yeah, I was yeah, not happy. They sold it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mine got thrown in the garbage. <laughs> oh, boy. Back then, comic books, you know, they were something that my parents, or my mom, she had more control over what I did anyway because she was home during the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were supposed to read classical literature, not junk comics. So I started reading uh, classics illustrated. Uh, <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> read the real book. Oh, man. At what age did you start acting? Oh, it wasn't until I was already uh, in my senior year of high school. I hadn't even seen a play until I was a junior in high school. Wow. And uh, I went to an all-boys school in Cleveland, St. Ignatius High School, the Jesuits. And uh, I was going with a girl who went to Lourdes Academy around the corner, which was an all-girls school. And they were putting on their senior production of Oliver. And they needed guys to audition. Uh, Yeah, the guys weren't really showing up. (laughs) Yep. So yep. I was kind of blackmailed into going and auditioning for this play, and I got the part of Mr. Bumble. Okay. And it was almost like magic when I stepped out on stage and realized that I had the power to make make people laugh and uh-huh. be amused, and what I did had some merit. It was like finding my place in the world. And after that, I couldn't be kept out of I went off to every single girls' school that was in Cleveland and started auditioning <laughs> for their senior class plays. And then I got into mine at the, my own school. It was like I was hooked. And then when I went to university, I majored in theater arts. Okay. And I was never not in a play. It was, that was it. I found my niche. Yeah. I've been pursuing that uh, now for, well, I did my first year of apprenticeship to Actors' Equity in 1971 at the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival. That was my first paying job as an actor. Huh. So that's 48 years ago. Well, congratulations. Yeah, well, it's it's an awesome number, you know? You mm-hmm. think about that, and, wow, it's a long time to be working. 
It is, especially when you hear so many... And you know who was in the company that year that uh, he was already a member of Equity? It was Robert England. Really? Yeah. Freddy Krueger. That's awesome. Did you get to know him at all? Oh, yeah. We became best friends. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we kept contact for several years, but then when I moved to Canada and uh, he went to Los Angeles, uh, you know, we stopped staying in touch. I just kept up with what he was doing. Yeah. I, you know, all of a sudden he was in a TV series. Mm-hmm. That was big news. What was he like back then before the fame? Oh, he was terrific. He was very helpful to a young actor who was just starting out. He gave me uh, a lot of tips on how to put together uh, the steps to start a career. And then when I was auditioning around, he was working at a theater in Michigan. And they were auditioning... Uh, and he put me up uh, for a couple of nights so I could come there and do an audition. And uh, Well, we stayed in touch for a couple of years or so after the festival until he moved to L.A. You know, he was very helpful in uh, getting me started. Well, maybe now that you're doing more conventions, maybe there's a reunion coming ahead, you know? Well, you never know. He might, he might be at one of these places. I know that uh, this next convention I'm going to in Los Angeles, Ron Perlman is going to be the yep, yep. guest. And he and I did Quest for Fire together back in 1980. Oh, wow. And I hadn't seen him since. Huh. That would so be I don't know if a great reunion he'll remember right or not. I know Ray Don Chong remembered me because uh, Tony Daniels knows her. Okay. He's one of the uh, X-Men. He played Gambit for a while. Okay. And uh, her name came up last convention in uh, New Mexico, and he texted her and said, George says hi, and she remembered me. Aw. Because that's going back almost 40 years, too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so how did you get into uh, voice acting? Uh, well, you got an agent, and you started auditioning. But uh, the original voice job that I got, I was doing theater, and somebody there was already doing voice work, and uh, they suggested that I audition for this lady who was a casting director at that time they didn't even know I really have casting directors for voice she was working at an agency and this is how you got your work is you knew people who would cast at the agencies like advertising agencies mm-hmm. and then they would uh, put together a group of people to do their their uh, voiceovers and in the old days you never auditioned for anything they just you had a demo tape yep you had a reputation and people knew who you were and what you did and you just got calls and that was it. You get a call from your agent, say, I got a booking for you, and you did like three, four jobs a week. And then all of a sudden, casting people got involved and became a middle middleman yeah. in the entire affair, and things got to be a lot more difficult, and you had to go and audition for every single word. And then the, uh, the business got extremely crowded because everybody wanted to get into it because you could make a lot of money, and you didn't have to work very hard. And everybody felt that they could do it. So all of a sudden now they're auditioning for two days for a one-line tag on a commercial. (laughs) And they're hearing hundreds and hundreds of people. And you wonder, how can they even make a decision? I know. And there's a lot of crazy stories about uh, there was this one famous voiceover guy in Canada who only did one take. He was perfect. He always got it right. And so he went in and did his take, and it was absolutely flawless, and the uh, client wasn't there, just the engineer and the uh, advertising person. 
and they sent him home. And uh, they played the uh, spot for their client, and they said, well, that's fantastic, but I'd like to hear the other takes. Well, there weren't any. So the engineer ran a continuous loop at the same spot and gave it to the guy, and he sat and agonized over it for like three hours. (laughs) And then he says, I think I like take number three the best. (laughs) And this is one of those famous stories, very much like Orson Welles when he stomped out of the... uh, The Peas commercial, which is something that everybody listens to that's a voice actor. Yeah, that's pretty epic. That's epic. Well, this was epic, too, that they they couldn't do anything. Here's a flawless guy who makes triple scale on anything Mm -hmm. he does, and uh, they just cut a continuous loop and play it for the (laughs) client. (laughs) So there are stories like that. that I had an episode where uh, I did a commercial for a toothpaste or a toothbrush, and they uh, wanted to delete the word new. So I went into the session. They were going to redo the commercial, and the engineer said, you know, there's really no need for us to even do the session. I press this button, and the word new disappears. So again, that's what he did. (laughs) Deleted the word new. The Uh client came in. They played in the spot that had been on the air for a year and a half. He said, oh, I love it. That's great. He says, but I'd like to hear the other takes. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to sit there for another hour and a half and do about a dozen more takes of the same commercial that had been on the air for a year and a half just to please them, and usually they end up taking the first take anyway. Yep, that's right. That's how it works. Tell me about working on Ewoks and droids in the the early 80s. Well, it was very exciting, first of all, because Star Wars was one of those things where when I was in university, I had a drama teacher who said that, you know you've seen a good production when you walk out of the theater and you're going in the wrong direction. Uh Uh-huh. And this is what happened to me. When we came out of Star Wars, we were so stunned, so awestruck, that we literally walked a half a block in the wrong direction going home. And went, oh. <laughs> yeah. And we knew that we'd seen a really, really great film. And then to have this thing being uh, transferred to animation a few years later, and then getting the part, it was extremely exciting. And it was a local Canadian production, you know, under the auspices of the uh, Lucasfilm but a Canadian director and a Canadian uh, studio. And we had a blast. It was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. It was my very first series work as an uh, animation actor. Mm-hmm. The way that we did these things was you went, went in solo, you did your lines, okay. and then the next person went in and did their lines. Sometimes they would feed you lines, sometimes they'd play you the other person's records. But most of the time, you just filled in the blanks, Yeah. and uh, you did your job, and then you went home, and then the next person went in right after you, and they did theirs. In X-Men, we experimented with uh, what was very much like radio drama, where we had an ensemble together, and we recorded, but it was so time-consuming, because the mics would bleed. So you'd have six people in a room, and you'd have to turn off everybody else's mic and turn on the person's mic only, who had the next line. And the delay was so long that the spontaneity of it in trying to get any kind of uh, a banter going yeah. was uh, self-defeated. Huh. And, well, because you can't build on the energy that somebody said and then wait 15 seconds no. while they turn mics off and your mic on. It's not natural. And they get the same reaction. You know, there was already a huge delay. So to save time, they just went to the same system of individual records. Otherwise, it would take hours and hours and hours of 
everybody being in the studio. And yep. Very time-consuming. Because every time that uh, you do one of these things, you're paying for the studio. That's the most expensive part of the uh. job. It's the studio and the engineer. So if you do a job and you get it within a couple of takes and you're done, then he's got the rest of the, the time that they've purchased from the studio to do edits. So they save money that way. Yep. Now, if you're there and you're using the entire block of time that they've booked to do the record, and then they have to get another block of time to do their edits and their tweaking, then that's no good. <laughs> yep. You take too long. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you about my story of X-Men. I was obsessed with that cartoon. It's still an amazing, amazing cartoon. A lot of cartoons from my childhood don't really hold up, and X-Men is definitely one of those cartoons. And I was so obsessed that uh, I was 12 years old when it came out, and every Saturday morning, I would go to the VCR, I'd pop a tape in, I'd, I would tape every single episode, I'd sit there, take out the commercials, pause it during the commercials, and by the end of the whole run, I had the entire series on VHS, I can go back and watch it, and then after every episode, my dad would take me to the local comic book store in Reno, Nevada, which is where I grew up, and we would pick up the latest issue of X-Men, all because of your cartoon. Well, that's really an honor. And we had no idea at the time that we were such an impact on people. Yeah. We knew that we had to be a success because we went five seasons. Usually after three seasons, they've got enough to syndicate, and if the show's not really hot, they cancel it, and then they put it into the box, and off it goes. But the fact that we did five seasons, that's major syndication. So we knew that we had a successful series, but we didn't know how successful or to what extent the impact on people's lives was. And it really wasn't until I started doing the Comic-Cons this year that I actually found out what it meant to some people. Oh, man. And then when we rewatched a lot of the episodes, because you have to, like, I hadn't watched the show in 25 years, yeah. and there was a big reunion that we were going to have in Texas, so I thought, well, we should start rewatching some of these episodes, and what if people ask me about things? How much do I really remember? <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> So we actually had a screening of uh, Beauty and the Beast oh, yes. at a panel, and then a discussion afterwards. And it was amazing how that show held up 27 years yeah. later, because now this is two years since uh, Eric and Julia wrote their book on the making of X-Men. So it's 27 years later, and boy, that show was so topical, even more so than it was at the time. Yeah. Because I think that at the time, people were even more uh, liberal and accepting than they are today. Yep. I think the uh, the whole movement of the 60s and the early 70s was still fresher, and people still had that same kind of spirit, but today, that's all gone. That's dead. Yeah, I think, I th honestly, I, I what, think the what's Internet... What's happening today is an abomination. Yeah, I think the Internet has a lot to do with the growing hatred, you know what I mean? Yep. Because they have an anonymous venue. Exactly. You don't have to be there. You don't have to show your face. You don't have to put a mask on. Nope. You just send out your hate, and all these people can uh, can grab it. I don't. I don't understand the internet. I just can't stand it. Well, why anybody would want to put their most personal feelings and uh, ideas and events out there for everyone to see, or even for the whole family to see? You know, I'm still of the uh, the opinion that if you you have an 
an excellent event that happens. You take a bunch of pictures, you print them up, and then you show them <laughs> to the people that you want to see them. Yep. But you don't share them with everybody. Yeah. And if you have a thought, you share it with a couple of people, and if it doesn't really fly, then maybe you should keep it to yourself. <laughs> Not immediately put it out there and everybody sees it. Oh, and then, man. I apologize. I was out of line. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> too late. <laughs> That's out there forever. And even if you're a politician, and right now we're in the middle of a, a federal election coming up in October, and all this stuff that people said that was uh, politically incorrect 25 years ago is being dredged up. And how can you vote for this guy as a leader when 25 years ago he was against same-sex marriage? Yeah. People, well, people, people change. change. <laughs> yep, exactly. People they change. cover a lot of different things. They think, oh, maybe I was wrong. But it's out there. Yeah. I, I know I wouldn't be friends with myself, you know, with my 19-year-old self. You know what I mean? You, you change as an adult. Yes, you do. But I'm not terribly proud of a lot of the stuff that I did when I was a teenager in my 20s. Exactly. Even some of the stupid stuff I did when I was in my 30s. <laughs> not that it was politically incorrect, but it was stupid. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're human. We're human. Yeah. I blew myself up with fireworks because it says <laughs> right on the fireworks, do not hold. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Of and course. instead of firing off fireworks, it blew up like a stick of dynamite. I was lucky oh, I kept man. my fingers. But I, I was walking around with a giant bandage looking like, well, it was a giant gauze mitt uh-huh. for weeks. Third degree burns. Huh. And again, you know, I felt like the stupidest person yep. in the world. How yep. can you have done this? <laughs> And nowadays, and they reiterated that at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> nowadays, you, somebody would be streaming that on YouTube. Yeah, that would be in YouTube. Everybody, hey, look what Booza did. <laughs> 25 million hits later. Yeah. Tell me about the uh, audition process to get Beast. Did you go in there auditioning for Beast, or were you open yes. to pretty much anybody? Well, they were not necessarily open auditions like they put out the call and anybody and their dog can come and show up. They mm-hmm. put out the call to agents. Agents submitted, there usually is a quota of how many people each agency is allowed to send in. Roughly there's, uh, at that time, there would have been maybe about maybe 50 people sent from all the agencies to audition. And then they weeded down to the final the dozen or so or maybe less for the callbacks and again I don't really recall I knew that it was going to be X-Men because they didn't even give it a proper name they called it Project X <laughs> means they didn't really want the word out there of what it was going to be but because I had read X-Men comic books I knew who Beast was yeah. and I knew who Wolverine was and I knew what X-Men comics were so I cottoned on right away that uh, well they were making a series out of X-Men and I already had Ewoks under my belt, mm-hmm. so I thought, well, you know, this would be another great thing to do. But I don't really recall the entire process. They, uh, I know they went through a lot of different stages where uh, eventually they, they had to recast everything or redo the audition process because people were doing cartoon voices and they wanted uh, natural voices. Yeah. Uh, I don't really recall that. All I know is I was very excited when I got the part and then disappointed when they put me in jail for several episodes. Yeah. Cause, uh, <laughs> you were just gone. I was just gone. <laughs> and I didn't even know if I was going to be coming back or not. 
Really? And then not until the uh, the book came out did I find out that uh, originally they hadn't planned on Beast being a part of the uh, core cast. Wow. And then they realized that they'd made a mistake when they stuck him in jail, and then they busted him out or got him out, and then he became a member of the core cast. Uh-huh. And I played in every episode after that. So I it was Yeah. It was touch and go, because you, sometimes you get a part and you think, oh, work, and then what happened? Huh. <laughs> I never knew that. I just thought that was a plan to get Beast out, and in season two he would just really be part of the team. I never knew that oh, they no, didn't there was, uh there was debate over the fact. And I didn't find that out until uh, they, they wrote that book. Yeah, yeah, I keep meaning to pick that book up. I need to buy that book. It's quite good. Yeah. It really shows you what goes on and... There was, there was, there was not an easy process getting that show on the air. Mm-hmm. And again, it brings to mind a lot of the uh, decisions that were made by producers over the years. I don't know if you saw uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. I did. The producer who uh, rejected Queen. Okay, yeah. Uh, Mike Myers. Uh-huh. And as they exit the room, he says, you forever will be known as the producer who lost Queen. <laughs> yep. And then up to the end of the movie where 500,000 people are listening to Queen's concert for... <laughs> <laughs> and there sits Mike Myers <laughs> in a pile of poo. <laughs> and the same thing happened in Canada, where uh, the people who came up with the idea for Saturday Night Live approached the CBC, and they thought it was a stupid idea. And how many years has been that? That been on the air? Gosh, yeah, decades. Yep. So there's been bad decisions made by the top all along the line that somebody else capitalized on because they decided to take the chance. Now, you talked a little bit about Beauty and the Beast, which is actually one of my all-time favorite episodes of the show. I'm sure it's probably yours as well. What Do you remember what your thoughts were when you first read that script? Well, finally, I get to express some real emotions. Yeah, you get to shine. You get a, a chance to shine. First of all, it's a featured episode. And a character like me, and in my other like live action career, you know, I don't get parts like that. You know, I get the the fights, the the chases, the but not the love scenes, not yep. the uh, the tender scenes. Yep. You know, they're all uh, live action stuff, and even as Beast, you know, even though he was uh, the intellectual of the group, and always uh, looking for the peaceful way out of a dilemma when a time came you know he could get in there and rumble with the best of them but to have a touching episode like this where he actually falls in love with somebody and then has to sacrifice their love because he's afraid for her well-being you know it was a very touching episode and it's not something that i get to do very often so i was grateful that uh, they wrote it and they had the uh the person who wrote the uh, episode as well at the last Comic-Con in New Mexico. Oh, man. So she was a part of the panel. And got to thank her personally for the words. Aren't these conventions amazing? I mean, you're out there hanging out with the cast members that you probably haven't, some of them probably didn't meet 25-plus years ago, and now you actually get a chance to hang out with them, meet some of the showrunners. What is that like? Well, it's kind of like going to your high school reunion. Uh-huh which also occurred for me the 50th one this year. Oh, I went to my 50th reunion, and God, there was a lot of old men. 
And this is another thing that if you haven't seen the cast in quite some time, then when you do see them, you remember them the way you saw them yeah. 27 years ago. Yep. And they look old now. Yep. Or older. And they've all gone off to do different things. Uh, Cal I see more frequently because we live in the same town and we audition for a lot of the same things. Okay. Because <laughs> he's the one that got me involved in doing the Comic-Cons in the first place. Okay, yeah. And Cal's great. I had him on the show, I think, two years ago, maybe three years ago now, and he is definitely Wolverine. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. Well, this is the thing. is Every time that you get cast as a part, there's a certain part of you that goes into the character that you build. Yeah, yeah. And they choose you because you brought that character or that part of the character to the audition, and they see it. And they go, ah, let's see what he does with this. And then you build on it, then you use the words that they have written, and you embellish it with what you've brought to it, mm -hmm. and that's complete character. But the basis of it is you and what you brought to it. So in a sense, yeah, everybody's got a part of what they played as a part of them now, especially after five years of doing it. Yeah, but he's the one that uh, told me that you wouldn't believe the appreciation that you get from the, the people and the love that you feel. And it's it's a great thing to do. I mean, especially when you're you're on the verge of almost being retired, and there's not a hell of a lot you can do in the business anymore. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're a part of something again. And you meet the fans, and they come to your table, and they, they sometimes all they want to do is chat, shake your hand, and tell you how much you meant to them when they were 18 or 15, mm -hmm. and yep. struggling with being the odd guy and being picked on. Exactly. Bullied. That was that was me, hundred percent. Well, I was a fat kid in the 1950s. Yep. <laughs> I was a son of uh, immigrant uh, refugees from Eastern Europe, so it wasn't exactly a popularity contest. And being fat in the 50s was not a great thing to be either. So there was always some sort of uh, altercation that I was involved with, and it didn't help that my parents dressed me like a nerd. Yeah. You know, there were these people that decided that their kids should go to school dressed like they were going to Sunday church. Mm -hmm. And that was the decent thing to do. You didn't wear jeans. Farmers wore jeans. And so I wasn't dressed exactly in the uh, the fashionable style of people who were cool, like the Fonz, you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> so there was a backlash when I got old enough to make my own decisions. And my parents couldn't really say anything anymore. You know, I grew ZZ top beard and hair down to the shoulders and really rebelled violently against uh, the system. So there was, and then it was in through theater that I found the voice that as opposed to being laughed at, you could make people laugh with you. Exactly. Instead of being picked on, you used your, what you thought is your deficiencies or your, uh, obstacles to your advantage and you use them to create the characters and all of a sudden you weren't the idiot fat kid that everybody picked on you were the unusual character that made them laugh yeah I wish I would have found that a little bit earlier no kidding <laughs> but being a big kid I, I could handle myself too so there was a, I didn't walk away from every altercation on the schoolyard and uh a lot of times people said, mm, well, maybe we shouldn't have picked on him. 
<laughs> but then I paid the price. Yep. Because <laughs> then you were at the principal's office, and then they called the folks, and then uh, your son's going to turn out to be a juvenile delinquent, and it's not easy being a kid. The kids nowadays, I do not want to be a kid nowadays, you know what I mean? Well, they drive you to suicide these yeah, days. They do. They've got the whole internet to pick on you. Yeah, it's remarkable. You no, know, it's not like there's three guys on the schoolyard that you try to avoid because they want to beat the shit out of you. Yeah. Now you've got everybody. Yeah, and then they go home and their parents are just in their phones, not even paying attention to their yeah. kids, and they just cannot get away from the bullies everywhere they go. I would not, at least as a kid, I was bullied as a kid at school, but I had an amazing home. And that's where I, that's my childhood. I don't look back at my school. I look back at my home, and they don't have that nowadays as kids. No. I hated school. Yeah, me too. To me, school was prison. And I remember sitting there in first grade when it was described to me that I had eight years of elementary school, four years of high school, and then four years of university. I thought, I'm doing a life sentence in prison. <laughs> yep. I'll be dead before I see anything that I like. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, holy <laughs> <fuck>. <laughs> Eight, four, twenty, that's sixteen years. <laughs> yeah. My God. It was interminable. Yep. But there were a couple of perks along the way because I managed to grade uh, to skip grade six. I went from grade five strictly directly to grade seven. Wow, look at you. And then I finished university in three years. There you go. So you skipped a life sentence. You took a couple years off. Well, I got a couple of years. I got two years off for uh, good behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they skipped it because I was big, and I got good grades, so they figured I could handle it. And grade six is kind of repetitive anyway. It is. There's not a lot of new information that's being fed. And I always got good grades because I was pressured to. So that when I uh, pulled straight A's in school, they said, well, we can skip him a year because he's as big as the seventh graders. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to argue with that. One less year of this place, exactly. fine. Now, did you find that you were bullied more in 7th grade because you were younger? Because, honestly, 7th and 8th grade are probably my worst years being bullied. Yeah, yeah. I had definitely more fights. Mm -hmm. There was more schoolyard activity than before. But, again, this is where I started to hold my own. People eventually just left me alone. And then high school is a whole different thing because I didn't find a lot of bullying in high school. It was a, a college prep. Type school where already there was a lot of discipline. The Jesuits were no slouches, and uh, everybody kind of found their place by that time. So I got involved in a lot of extracurricular activities, and you found your own group to hang out with. The only one that bullied me was the gym teacher. <laughs> they tend to do that because I tried out. You know, I was a big kid, and I tried out for football. And uh, he thought, oh, I can mold this guy into a, a lineman, and I hated it. So I quit. And uh, through the course of time, I got more and more, I got involved with the, uh, the speech squad, which was uh, like debate and uh, original oratory. So I'd write speeches, and they were basically satires and parodies. And then you recited them, and you did competitions and traveled all around. And This is what I forsook uh, football for, so he was kind of on my case. Mm -hmm. And he was also the head of the local draft board. So all through senior year, 
All he kept saying was, Booza, I got a pair of jungle boots just waiting for you. Oh, man. <laughs> yes, well, screw you, I'm going to university. <laughs> but then you realize that in university, all you did was you bought yourself a few years of pass, because as soon as you graduated, they took you. Yep. If you had a 2S deferment, you were guaranteed a ticket uh, right into the boot camp when you graduated. So that that was when they brought in the lottery. Oh, okay, yep. And uh, I decided I was going to take my chances, and I dropped my 2S and became 1A. And uh, they stopped one number before they got to me. Oh, my gosh. Lucky yeah. guy. That's why I don't buy lottery tickets anymore. <laughs> I figured I won the biggest one of my life. No, no kidding, no kidding. Man. People ask me, did you go to Canada as a draft dodger? I said, no, no, I already did one and a half years as 1A because they didn't even delist me for a year and a half. And then finally they dropped me down to a lower category, and then uh, eventually they just stopped the draft altogether by 1975, I think. Mm-hmm. Before 75, they stopped the draft. And in 75, they stopped NAM. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's the story of being bullied and the draft. <laughs> and then you became beast. You know, you can't and then be... I became beast. <laughs> so you, you mentioned loving comics as a kid. What about comic book movies nowadays? Do you get into those? I did for a little while. But uh, so many now. Anymore. I enjoyed a couple of them. I liked the Superman movies in the beginning when there was uh, oh the guy who died, Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve. And uh, I liked the first Batman movie, and I liked yep. the first X Men movie. Yep. But as in anything, when you start doing sequels, they don't uh, seem to hold up quite as well. No, you're you're hundred percent correct on that. And you were able to make a cameo in the first X-Men movie. What was that like? I heard Brian Singer was a big fan of the animated series. Well, the truth of the matter is that that movie never would have been made had it not been for our series. Exactly, exactly. And when I went in to do the audition, uh, I knew one of the guys who was, uh, I think he was a stunt coordinator or something on the show, and he mentioned to Brian Singer, who was there at the audition, that uh, I was originally the voice of Beast. And he said, uh, you know, if it wasn't for your show, we wouldn't be doing this today. Mm. And I was just auditioning for that little few-line part as the trucker, and uh, he gave me the part on the spot. Wow. Said, you know, welcome to the show, and thanks for uh, your work in the, the, the series. Isn't that amazing to think that if it wasn't for your show, we probably wouldn't have all the Avengers movie? I mean, Marvel as a company, I mean, they went bankrupt in the late 90s anyway. They would probably be nothing right now if it wasn't for your show. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where all the stars align properly to make something a success. Yep. Because we've been involved in so many projects where they say, oh, boy, this is going to take off. We're going to have sequels. You're going to be working for the rest of your life. This is going to be fabulous. And then you never hear another word. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you never take anything that you hear like that to the bank because it's all hype anyway. But when it actually does happen and you become a part of something that is timeless and so enduring, then you know you're, you've got a little piece of something that was special. 
and that's that's a real honor to say okay well in all these years i've been doing this i've done a lot of crap i've done a lot of mediocrity i've done few things that are really good but this this one thing really stands out and really meant something to a lot of people yep so it's a, it's a feather in the cap for sure and definitely definitely a timeless show like you said in a way i wish it weren't <laughs> yeah <laughs> it would be so nice if the things that we did and said in the 60s and 70s were translated today into reality, like Woodstock. You know, it was just the 50th anniversary a couple of weeks ago of Woodstock. Yep. And how you can get 500,000 people together all on drugs and booze and nothing happens. <laughs> uh, then, you know, a month later, Altamont. Yep. Whole different ball game. But for that one weekend, everything that everybody believed in came true. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. I know it's it's probably hard, it's not good to say, but it's kind of like after nine eleven for over here. The week after nine eleven, everybody was synchronized. Everybody was on the same wavelength. Yeah, I was in Montreal then, and I turned on the news early in the morning, and uh, I didn't know what I was watching, seeing these planes flying into the buildings. Yeah. I had it on a French channel, and uh, I wasn't really awake enough to translate it in my head. And it wasn't until I got on the set shooting uh, a TV series about bikers that I realized what had actually happened. It was really shocking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I was at work, and it didn't hit me because I heard people talking about it, you know. It didn't hit me until I got home and I saw the news. I really know how to bring an interview down, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> so what keeps you busy these days besides the conventions? Well, I still do work. Okay. Right now I had a just did a couple of days on a new Netflix series called Ginny in Georgia, and I still do animation. Not a lot of it, but every now and then when I need a grandfather or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of young children's cartoons. Uh, Eleanor Wonders Why, I think is the name of uh, the latest one, which is a little kid discovering things. Why climate is different in one place from another, and there's different plants to grow there. So it's a real teaching experience. I did that a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you ever heard of a series called Franny's Feet. I've heard of it, heard of it. But it's been vaguely. on. It's been on for ever. Okay. And it is one of these little kid teaching things where a grandfather and his uh, granddaughter are in a shoemaker shop, and she's at the counter and she takes in the shoes, and uh, he repairs them. And before she gives them to her grandpa, she puts them on and has this experience of what it's like to be the person who wore these shoes. Hmm. That's very cool. They come from all different walks of life, all different. Uh, areas of the world. So she travels in her mind to all these different places and meets all these different people, and then Grandpa fixed the shoes. And Edward, that's another one of those things that went five seasons. And uh, is quite, or no, I can't remember how many it went, but uh, it's still on on PBS. Awesome. And that, that's something we did in the 90s. Or was it the 90s? No, I think it was the early 2000s okay. we did that because that's more current. But I still do a little animation. Every now and then I'll do a 
a commercial, not very money because, again, there's so much of the work these days has gone non-union. Mm-hmm. Another thing we never thought would happen, but things change. And uh, I heard that a huge chunk of uh, the voiceover business has gone non-union because it's cheaper. Yep. You don't have to pay residuals. There's a lot of people that are just as good as uh, union people. Because it's not the easiest thing to get into the union. You need quite a lot of permits these exactly. days. So there's a lot of talented people that haven't bothered to go in the union. As long as there's enough non-union work to keep them busy, then they figure, why bother? Because as soon as you're in the union, you can't do non-union work anymore. And these days, when we're all in our senior years, we need the union because we paid into it for about 45 <laughs> years. And we need the benefits. We need the drug plan. We need yep. the, the health care. You don't want to lose that. Even though we've got universal health care here, <laughs> there's a lot of things that you pay for in the union that uh, you get a private room, you get uh, some drugs that aren't covered by the health plan covered. There's a lot of perks that you, you're using when you need them in your senior years. Hmm. So you don't want to piss off the union. <laughs> no, <laughs> you do not want to do that. Well, not over a job that only pays a few hundred bucks. Cause yeah. You don't get rich doing these things. Canadians don't get rich anyway. That's why there's so much work up here. As soon as you ask for more money, they find somebody else. So there's no negotiations. There's no overscale. You get what you're offered, and uh, that's it. And they even admitted that that's why they came to Canada to do the X-Men, because wow. their their uh, pay system was uh, more amenable to them than the United States. Well, I'm definitely glad they did. It wouldn't have been the same show without the voice that it got. Well, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. And it also shows that there's a great deal of talent in Canada Yep. that works cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of them did go down to the States. Yeah. You know, Chris Potter went down there. Yep, and, yeah, he had uh, a good run. He had a very good run. He still does. He does, yeah. Yeah, I had him on the show, I think, two years ago as well. I was his very first... Gambit interview if we ever talked about this series at all and it was a great great interview well he's a very nice guy yeah and he had a very good run he had a really good bunch of luck uh, good series you know Kung Fu Kung Fu and then I remember watching Silk Stockings when I was older mm-hmm. I did several episodes of Kung Fu oh yes right you did back in those days you went from one series uh, guest to another All oh, right, so I saw that I am so disappointed that I'm not going to be able to make the LA Comic Con this year. This is my first year missing in like three or four years because you've got you, Chris, Cal, um, Lenore's going to be there all together and a big old reunion. And Larry, the animator. The an- oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm, I'm kicking myself for not being able to do it. He's doing some special drawings, especially for the show. Wow. Well, have fun, all right? <laughs> well, I intend to. I haven't been to L.A. in quite a number of years yeah. now. Last time I was there was for a horror movie. Yep. I had to shoot one day with William Shatner oh, on a gosh. Christmas horror story. Yeah, I saw that. See, that was that's one of my favorite movies. I bet. I mean, it's it's a very cool character that you could play. It was. And it had a nice twist at the end. Mm-hmm. And it was fun in the old age to be able to do some action again even though it came a lot harder than it did when I was doing Sinbad. <laughs> and that fight with Krampus at the end, that was done in 25 below zero. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yep. 
and that poor guy wearing nothing but a loincloth and body paint. Oh, man. He was hypothermic. Oh, god. He's got like 2% body fat, and we were out there from early morning until late at night. He was, he was just dying. Just dying. I felt so guilty because there I'm wearing not only you know, long johns and protective clothing, but this whole Santa outfit and the cape and everything like that. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was toasty. You're having a great time. There he is, bloody naked. Oh, man. That poor guy, 25 below zero. Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I, I live in Montana, so I know that feeling, and I cannot imagine being practically naked out there in negative 25. That's crazy. So you're in Montana now? I am, yeah. I live, I've been here for about 11 years now. Ah. I did a nice bike trip through Montana when I was in Calgary, shooting okay. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yes, TV yes, a great show. I took a long weekend. To, I did the Going to the Sun Road. You know that one? I don't. Through uh, Glacier National Park. Oh, oh gosh, yeah, it's beautiful. That would have been amazing. It's one of those 19th century feats of engineering where they carved out a ledge on the side of the mountains, and uh, it starts about a half an hour south of uh, the border, and it goes to some extraordinary peak, and then it goes back down. I can't remember the town that I ended up in on the other side. Again, this is 20-some years ago. Yeah. But I was stunned by the beauty. I did it on the 4th of July weekend. There were eight-foot-high snowbanks yep. on either side of the road. Yep, I know that feeling. It was spectacular. Yeah, you really, there's no. There's nothing like Montana, honestly. I, I love it here. I wish there's more to do, but that's when I fly to L.A. or fly wherever, go to convention, you know, get yeah. out, get some of the, the city life, and then come back. Beautiful state. Yeah, it really is. And it's a great place to raise kids. I got three kids. And uh, uh, safe schools, you know, we feel good about sending them outside, so we can't complain. Oh, and you got lots of room to bury those school buses in the backyard for the apocalypse. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> you got uh, a school bus buried? No. <laughs> we need no. to get one, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man, I think I'm going to close with one more question. If you can have any mutant power, what would you have? Hmm. I kind of like Wolverine's healing abilities. Not necessarily the claws. No. But the ability to heal instantly. Being able to fly would be cool. I always wanted to do that because that was something that when I was a little kid, I had a blanket that I tied around my neck and pretended to fly like Superman. Of course. Everybody did that. Yep, I did. Everybody I, did that. Yep. Well, we even had the uh, Superman TV series. I watched that religiously. Oh, yeah, of course. I watched George that, too. George Reeves. Yep. I watched that on reruns as a kid. That was my favorite show. I couldn't miss that. I ran home from school every day so I could see that. But I think the healing powers of Wolverine... That would be definitely a good one to have, definitely. Well, all right, George, seriously, big fan of your work. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a huge honor. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Could I have you do And hopefully we'll run into each other at one of these cons. Seriously, I've been going to a lot more lately, and we definitely, definitely will. I promise you that. Hopefully we'll even get out to some in uh, the West. That would be amazing. Northwest. That would be amazing. I'd love that. Mind seeing Montana again. A amen to that. Yep. 
<laughs> Whenever you get up here, just let me know. <laughs> All righty. Can I have you do well, one more? Thank you very much. Can I have you do one more thing? Can I have you close oh. the interview out as Beast if you can? And this is George Boozer, uh, otherwise known as Beast, saying farewell after a wonderful interview. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to that Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.